All right, so tonight we're going to uh, we're going to discuss um, the doctrine of uh, justification by faith alone, and this is a uh, extremely important doctrine uh, in the history of the church. I mean, we just we just uh, many churches celebrated Reformation Day, uh, October thirty first. Of course, that was fifteen seventeen. Uh, the day that uh, Martin Luther nailed his uh, 95 thesis on the church door in Wittenberg. Um, and, uh, of course, we, you know, we, we, we pinpoint that day, but if you know the history of the Reformation really starts hundreds of years prior to that with uh, John Wycliffe and John Huss and, and others as well. Um, but Martin Luther called the doctrine of justification, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Um, because he rightly understood that that doctrine of justification is the very heart of the gospel. Um, it is not the whole of the gospel, um, but it is certainly uh, a, a significant, it's, it's, I would say that it is, it is half the gospel. It is one side of the coin. Um, because when we talk about the gospel, very often people, our minds immediately just go to the cross of Christ, right? Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. And if you'll believe that, you'll be saved. And that is true. That is true. Um, but that's only one half of it. Because if all we needed for salvation was the death of Christ on the cross, then why didn't Jesus just come down to earth, go straight to the cross, die for sins, you know, rise from the dead, and then go back up in heaven? I mean, what what is with the virgin birth that we're going to be talking about here, you know, come December? We're getting close to Advent season. You know, what is with being born human, living the life of a human, 33 years of, of obedience to uh, the law of God? Why was all that necessary if all we needed was his death on the cross because because we need more than just his death on the cross um because when we ask the question what is god's standard what does god require in order for us to be in a covenantal saving relationship with him well, the answer is found in Matthew chapter 5, last verse, verse 48. Somebody read that. Matthew 5, 48. I can read it. Okay. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection. Okay. Right? What God demands is perfection. And perfection doesn't mean just having our sins forgiven. Perfection means having always done what is right. Sinless perfection. And so you see the cross of Christ, it atones for our sins. It pays the penalty. You know, Christ took upon himself the penalty that was deserving to us, but we still have a sinful record. Um, in other words, think in terms of uh, a criminal who commits a crime, goes to prison, he does his time, and then he gets out, can he rightly say, with regards to the law, I am perfect. I've, I've, I, I am completely perfect with regards to the law and have never done anything wrong with regards to the law. Oh, you had to add that last right. Time, didn't you? <laughs> right. You know, you paid your debt, but you, you still have a criminal record. Right, you still have a criminal past. We can't erase that. That that is still there. And so, to be perfect means not just sinless, but having always done what is right. So that creates a monumental problem for all of us, right? Um, because. You know, for most of us, at six months of age, that ship has sailed. Um, 
you know, for everyone in this room, we've all violated God's laws. So the question is then, how do we obtain this? How, how can we be perfect in God's eyes in order to enter into a covenantal relationship with Him? And that's where the doctrine of justification is hugely important. So here's what I want you to understand is that the atonement, the cross of Christ, and the doctrine of justification are two sides of the same coin. And that coin is the gospel. Right? That's the gospel. The gospel includes both. If you lose one of them, there is no gospel. Right? With the justification without the atonement is not salvation. And the atonement without justification is not salvation. You have to have them both. So, first of all, as we discuss this then, um, I want to say up front that when we talk about the doctrine of justification, we are using courtroom language. Right? This is legal language in Scripture. And I'll show you where we get that from. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Here scripture says, If there is a dispute between men, and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down, and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Now, the Greek word that we find in the New Testament for uh, justification or justify, when you see that word to justify, or the word righteousness or righteous, they're actually all the same Greek word. It's the same Greek root word, and it's the it's the word uh, dikaiosune, or dikaiao in the verb, okay? I point that out because when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it says, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent, the Greek word in the Septuagint, um, well, the Hebrew word is a, is a sedek, but when it's translated into the Greek, the word for acquitting is the word justify, right? To justify. In the Hebrew and New Testament Greek mind, to justify someone is to declare that person not guilty, which is what it means to acquit someone. If someone has been acquitted, it means that we find him not guilty with regards to this law, right? He was accused of violating this law. He's had his day in court. And then the juror stands up and said, you know, with regards to this crime, we find the defendant not guilty. So when that happens, you've been acquitted. The biblical word for that is you've been justified in the eyes of the law. The law says you are not guilty. So it's, it's courtroom language that is being used. And God is the great judge of all the earth, right? That's what uh, Abraham says. Shall not the great judge of all the earth do what is right? And of course, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. The great judge is always going to do what is right. Um, so then, here's the question. This is talking about justifying a person with regards to one law. They've been accused of violating one law. They're brought into court. They're found not guilty. The judge acquits them, justifies them, declares them not guilty. Well, someday, we are all going to stand before the great judge of all the earth, and he is going to judge us according to his laws, according to all of his laws, not just one. On that day, in and of ourselves, is God going to find us guilty or not guilty? Will we be condemned or justified? Right? We all know the answer to that. In and of ourselves, we're going to be condemned. Um, so how do we escape that? Turn with me to... Um, Galatians.
Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul here is rebuking Peter, which starts back up in verse 11. And in verse 15, Paul says to Peter, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified, declared not guilty, acquitted. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, to be acquitted, to be declared not guilty by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified, right? No one will be justified by law keeping. Why is that? Well, we know the obvious answer, but let's look at how Paul describes it in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. What is that curse? For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. In other words, we're under a curse because if you're going to, if you're going to take the path of law keeping in order to be declared not guilty by God on the great day of judgment, then you have to keep the law perfectly. Of course, no one can do that, right? No one can keep all of the laws of God perfectly, but that is what God demands. Jesus says, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the law condemns us. Um, he goes on to say in verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? For the righteous shall live by faith. Interesting that that word for righteous is the same Greek word. It's the noun form, dikaiosune. Uh, that is the one who is justified or the one who will be justified shall live by faith. In other words, will survive the day of judgment, will live eternally by faith and not by works of the law, right? But again, how does that work? We're, we're getting there. I'm trying, I'm laying the groundwork for the doctrine. Look over at Romans. Now flip with me to Romans chapter four. I mean, Paul explains it in Galatians, but he just, he does a better job in Romans, partly because Galatians is written before Romans. Uh, Many theologians would say that Galatians is sort of the rough draft. And then in Romans, he really takes the book of Galatians and just fleshes it out. Um, and so you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 1. And Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, so now he's using Abraham as an example. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's referencing that story in uh, Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham says, well, you know, God, you know, I don't have any children. I mean, you know, Eleazar of Damascus, you know, one of the servants in my household is going to inherit everything. And God brings him out at his old age. He's like 90 years old, says, look up at the stars. So will be your offspring. And Abraham simply believes God. Abraham believed God. And this is important. And it was counted to him as righteousness. The Greek word for counted there is the Greek word lagitsamai. It's very important. It means to consider or to think of as Abraham believed God, and because he believed God, God considered Abraham to be righteous. He thought of him as being righteous. Abraham, in and of himself, is not righteous, but God treats him as though he is righteous. 
But how does that work? Look at verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, right? So works, law-keeping, labor, brings us our due. We get what we deserve. If you try to keep the law, and you don't keep the law perfectly, and you violate the law, then you're going to get your just desserts. And what are your just desserts if you violate the law of God? Hell, right? Your just desserts are hell. So the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, who declares not guilty, who acquits the ungodly, his faith, here it is, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. So what Paul is making the argument here very clearly is that we are considered by God to be righteous, to be to be as though we are someone who has always kept the law. God treats us as though. He thinks of us as being someone who has always kept the law. That's what it means to be righteous. To be righteous means having always kept the law. It means having to be right before the law, to be in right standing before the law. And Paul is saying that those who put faith in God, in the promises of God, in the Messiah of God, God counts that person to be righteous. The question becomes, we're still, we still haven't quite solved the puzzle. And what I mean by that is, God's standard is perfection. How is it that God can consider us to be perfect if in and of ourselves we're actually not perfect? And this is where the big debate comes in between Protestants and Catholics. This was the big debate of the Reformers. Um, and I'll get to that in a moment. I, I'm going to talk about the Catholic view in, in just a moment when we get toward the end. Um, but this is where they begin to, they, they make the argument toward Protestants that our view of justification is legal fiction, is what they say. Because they argue that if a per, if God is going to declare someone to be not guilty, if God is going to declare someone to be actually righteous, then that person has to be righteous in and of themselves. And if they're not actually righteous, then it's legal fiction. So if you're righteous in and of yourself, why would you need to be declared? That seems like an oxymoron. Right. Well, they're saying that God can only declare a person righteous if they are actually righteous. So at the day of judgment, you have to be righteous for God to declare you not guilty before the law. So, we still haven't solved the puzzle. We're getting there. How is it that God can count our faith as righteousness? How, how does that work exactly? Paul explains it well in his own words in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 4. Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, meaning Paul says, You know, I've, I've got reason to boast in, in the flesh, boast in works. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes on to basically give us his resume of legal works. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, of course, what does he mean by that, blameless? Paul isn't saying that he's never sinned, right? Paul himself calls himself the chief among sinners. What he is saying is that he always kept the law, that when he did sin, he always made sure to offer the appropriate sacrifice. He always went to the temple. He never missed a ceremony, right? Paul says, as to the law, I kept it all. I did it all. And then look what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had from all of this law keeping, whatever gain I had or whatever gain I thought I had, Paul says, 
I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I count it as rubbish, a waste of time, Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. All of his hard work, all of his law keeping, he says, I count as rubbish. Why? Listen carefully. Look at his words. In order that I may gain Christ, in other words, I'm going to not trust in my works anymore. I'm going to count all of my works as rubbish, as a waste of time, as useless. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, union with Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from law keeping, but that which, that is a righteousness, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see the language that Paul is using there? That by our faith, we are brought into union with Christ, that I may be found in Christ, in union with Christ by faith. This is where union with Christ is such an important doctrine. By faith, we are brought into union with Christ, who is himself righteous. Christ is the only human being who's ever walked the face of the planet who can honestly say, I am righteous before the law, right? Even Jesus asked his accusers at one point, which among you can accuse me of sin? Nobody says anything, right? I can't think of one, right? Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Christ is completely righteous in him. He kept the law perfectly throughout his life. He lived the life of perfect obedience to the law that God expects of us. So because Christ is righteous, by faith we are brought into union with Christ who is righteous. <coughs> so we are indwelled by Christ who is righteous and we are enveloped by Christ who is righteous. Um, to borrow a, a phrase from, from John Piper, uh, John Piper once said that the righteousness of Christ is like a fireproof suit that enables us to enter into the blazing presence of God's glory and not be incinerated because of our sin, right? We're still sinful. We've sinned. I, I can't change my past. I'm a sinful creature. I have a sin record. I have a criminal record. Christ died for my sins. He took the penalty for my sins, but I still have a criminal record. In and of myself, I'm not righteous, but Christ is. And by faith, I am brought into union with Christ and he becomes my righteousness. And even that faith that you're talking about, even that faith is not ours. That faith is not and ours. And that's what's so amazing to me. Yeah. I, you know, uh, it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. It wasn't his. Right. Uh, and that's, it's, uh, it's too much to try to split a hair and see, how did I, my faith. Right. Right, God gives us the faith to believe. Right? I mean, faith is a gift, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We've been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Grace and faith are gifts given to us by God. And then, based on that faith that He gives to us, we are counted as righteous. But we're counted as righteous because that faith brings us into union with Christ. So it's not the faith itself upon which God considers us to be righteous, but it's because the faith brings us into union with Christ and therefore he sees us as being righteous because we are cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. Is that the doctrine of imputation? That is the doctrine of imputation, right? We are imputed with Christ's righteousness or another word for imputed is reckoned or credited. We are credited with his righteousness. Um, yes, Jack. Does that mean that with the law of imputation, you can have impunity? No. <laughs> impunity. Um, no. Because once saved, always saved, if truly saved, 
and justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Right? If we are truly justified by faith and we truly have salvation, then we'll have a natural desire to live in obedience to the Word of God. But you see, that obedience adds nothing to our righteousness. Our righteousness is purely based on the righteousness of Christ. Now, this is where, again, the Roman Catholic Church accuse Protestants of legal fiction. Because they say, even with that understanding, right, you're cloaked in Christ's righteousness. It's his righteousness. You're not actually righteous. How can the great judge of all the earth declare you not guilty, right? It goes back to the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 4. Again, in Romans chapter 4, Paul uses that so important word, legitimai. Now to the one who uh, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, verse five, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is considered. That the word legitimai means to be considered, to think of. His faith is thought of by God as righteousness, because as Paul says back in Philippians. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. So that faith is the channel through which Christ's righteousness comes to us, as it were. So here's another illustration to help you understand how this is not legal fiction. Um, and I'm going to steal from John Piper again. I heard him give this illustration years ago. And I just always thought it was excellent illustration. Um, I'll change the, the, the language a little bit to modernize it. Uh, so let's assume, let's assume that, um, you know, Corbin's a little older and, uh, you know, one day he, he comes to me and, uh, he says, uh, dad, uh, this Friday, I would like to go with my friends. Uh, out to the movies, right? So he's old enough that his friends are going to pick him up, drive him to the movies or something. And he says, I want to go with my friends out to the movies on, on, on Friday night. And, uh, and I say to him, well, son, you know, we have people coming over this weekend and, uh, your room needs to be cleaned, you know, um, on Friday. And if your room is clean, uh, by the time they come to pick you up, then you can go, right? So Friday rolls around and he gets distracted by other things. Not that my son ever gets distracted, but he gets distracted by other things and uh, he ends up, you know, going for a bike ride around the, uh, around the neighborhood. And he goes for a bike ride around the neighborhood. And um, I begin to realize that as the time is getting closer that his room is not going to be cleaned in time. And so being the ever kind and compassionate <laughs> dad that I am, I decide to go in there and I clean his room for him. And he walks in the door, and as soon as he walks in the door, his friends pull up, and it occurs to him, shoot, I didn't clean my room. And so then I say to him, your room is clean. I cleaned it, and you could go to the movies. Right? Now, is there any injustice or contradiction there? No, because... The requirement was a clean room. That was the standard. The room must be clean. The room is now clean. I cleaned it. I did the work, but I'm going to give him the credit for it, and he's going to receive the reward of being able to go out with his friends. God's standard is perfect obedience to the law. Christ does the work for us. God the Father gives us the credit 
for his work and we receive the reward and get to go free. So that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That once we put our faith in Christ by faith alone, we are credited. That's the word, imputation. We are imputed. We are credited with Christ's righteousness, with his work, with his labor. We are given the credit for that. And based on that, God the Father looks upon us and says, not guilty. You may go free. Yes, Bobby. Right. Not my own. How, how do you deal? How but a righteousness that comes from God, he says. Yeah, not my own. I don't know exactly how they would interpret that text. Um, I can guess because here's what the Roman Catholics see. Roman Catholics are, are dealing with the same dilemma. They start at the same place. They recognize Jesus's words in Matthew 5:48, "Be perfect." Right? God demands perfection. He, he demands. They, they recognize that this is courtroom language from Deuteronomy 25. That God has to be able to declare us not guilty or righteous before him. So how does that happen? What they developed, their system of theology, what they developed in terms of justification is that we have to earn righteousness. We earn righteousness through law-keeping, through obedience. We earn additional righteousness through the keeping of the sacraments of the church. They developed this whole sacramental system. There's the seven sacraments of the church, uh, baptism, the Eucharist, uh, confirmation, reconciliation, uh, last rites, uh, marriage, and holy orders, right? There's the seven sacraments of the church. And as you fulfill these sacraments, you earn righteousness. This is probably where they would get it from. You earn righteousness from what they call the treasury of merit. And that is that Christ earned perfect righteousness. And all of that righteousness is stored in heaven, in the treasury of merit, it is Christ's righteousness. But as we fulfill the sacraments of the church, that righteousness comes to us from God, but it becomes our righteousness. So that we inherently, in and of ourselves, become righteous. So the difference is, here's the language, we speak about imputed righteousness, they speak about infused righteousness. You are infused with Christ's righteousness. You earn it so that it becomes your own righteousness. Now, here's the dilemma that you have to ask the question, how do you know you've earned enough righteousness by the time you die? How do you know you've earned enough righteousness to offset all of the bad that you've done? Right? Um, and that's where they develop the doctrine of purgatory. So you don't know. And so, if you haven't earned enough righteousness, then when you die, you enter purgatory, right, from the Latin, uh, purgare, which means to purge, and, and that's where you are, your remaining sins are purged, and once your remaining sins are purged and you become perfectly righteous in the eyes of God, then you can go to heaven and God declares you not guilty. Right. But then that puts it back on us. It becomes work. It becomes law keeping. It, it is. It, it completely contradicts the book of Galatians and Romans. They are they are misreading. But that is because most of their teaching doesn't come from Scripture. It becomes from the teachings of the Pope and bishops and and, and church councils. That waters down. That waters down Christ's death, his crucifixion, everything. I mean, yeah. if we have any part in in trying to earn it or reconcile with it or keep a pie chart or a graph chart or whatever right. what we've done or haven't done, then that strips Christ of his deity. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is why Luther um, often referred to Christ's righteousness as an alien righteousness. And what he meant by that is that it is a righteousness that is outside of us, right? It is a righteousness that is not our own. It is Christ's righteousness. We are credited with that righteousness, but we're, 
It does not make us inherently righteous. It doesn't become ours. It is his, but we are credited with his righteousness. We are cloaked in his righteousness by faith and thereby declared not guilty. So I've got a question. Um, you may not, you're reading that book on um, Eastern Orthodoxy. Hmm. How close are they to that? Because my limited understanding is that they confused, have confused the same issue. Mm -hmm. And they will say yes. And no. Right. Yes, they have Christ's righteousness, but they also have their own. Yes. Do they fall into the same trap? Is that where they're... Yes. They deny the gospel. The Eastern Orthodox Church denies the gospel. It is a false church. It's in the same camp as Roman Catholicism. Um, they, they, they deny... Uh, salvation by faith alone. They deny and justification by faith. You not really not not openly. Right. Holes to find out. So is it the same? Like she's asking. So so is it another thing like people that join the Eastern Orthodox Church or start affiliating in that manner? Are they unaware? I I can't answer that. Maybe and maybe not. All I can say is that they've joined a false church. They've joined a church that falls into the same group as not only Roman Catholicism, but Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. It is a false church. It is not a true church. They deny the gospel. Because I, I know I, I have a lot of Catholic people in my life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's many of them that I'm fully convinced that their salvation is through faith alone, like, like pretty open about it yeah. and um, talk about it and stuff. I think it is purely that they just don't understand necessarily like the teachings that where the background comes from. Right. But also part of the draw for them is the seriousness. Right. The reverence. Yeah. And you know, the, the serious of the um, seriousness of the services, the rights of the yeah, yeah, right. like right. how everything has like a place and an order, mm -hmm. right? And yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I, 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 I would never say that anyone who claims to be Catholic and attends a Catholic church that they are not saved simply by that. Right. You know, in the end, thankfully, you know, the only doctrine we truly have to have right to be saved is the gospel, mm -hmm. and. You know, so you really have to, you know, ask each Roman Catholic individually. And the question to ask is it, you know, a simple question, a simple test is, you know, if you die today and God said, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? And if their answer is, because I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that's it, well, then they're holding to the true gospel. Yeah. But if they throw in something else, you know, well, because I have faith and I was baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. Or, or I fulfilled the sacraments of the church. Or, okay, now you've just denied the gospel. Because Paul makes very clear, if we seek to add anything to grace, we nullify the grace of God. It's, it's all of grace, it's all of faith, or it's nothing. And Paul makes that clear in, in the book of Galatians. That if you add anything to faith, you nullify God's grace. And you, you've fallen, you've fallen from grace, Paul says. Um, so you have to ask them individually. And, and I do know, again, I, I've met Catholics as well, that I think we're probably saved because as I started to witness to them, um, I came to realize that they were just trusting in Christ alone and, and just by faith. Uh, many Catholics don't really understand Roman Catholic doctrine. Um, but at the same time, there are many that will throw in that, and I was baptized. You know, but you know what? You find that even in Protestant churches. And I walk the aisle. Yeah, you find that in Protestant churches. I mean, I I used to um uh I was a chaplain, a volunteer chaplain at a, at a assisted living center in South Dakota for several years, and it was always heartbreaking. These, you know, there was this one older woman I remember in particular, and uh, you know, I started trying to talk to her about Christ because you don't know where these people are, and I said, you know, do you do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? She's like 90 years old. She said, oh yes. And I said, so if you, you died, I mean, do you, do you believe for sure you would go to heaven? She said, oh yes. And I said, well, why do you believe that? And she said, well, I was baptized in the Lutheran church as an infant. Mm -hmm. 
That's the wrong answer. Right? Baptism doesn't save you. She's trusting in a work. Baptism doesn't save you. It is simply faith alone in Christ alone and nothing else. And, and that is why, that's why Luther said the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Because if you lose that doctrine, then you lose the gospel. And if you lose the gospel, there is no church. Um, and, and he was willing to be threatened and to be burned at the stake over this doctrine. Um, and so was Wycliffe and John Huss and uh, John Knox. Uh, they all battled for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is tremendously important. And yet, sadly, many Christians don't understand it at all. Um, if you even bring up the topic, justification, what is that? You know, I've been a Christian for decades and have no idea what you're even talking about. That is so sad because it is so important uh, to the Christian faith. I, I guess I'm just a simpleton because I ever hear that and I go, Yay! Right. <laughs> I don't have to do anything. Amen. I believe, you know, I mean, it takes the, takes the monkey off your back of performance of thinking I've got to jump through hoops or I have right. to appease this, you know, like this God that I have to appease and I have to constantly try to earn his favor. It's just to me, it's like, yay, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Any other questions, comments? Yeah. I thought, I find it interesting that the, the doctrine of marriage of the Catholic church, it's, it's number seven. Mm. Oh, the, the sacraments of the church, yeah, seven? Perfect, yeah. It's a perfect number. Yeah. Marriage is a big deal. Seven. Yeah, they, 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 they do that on purpose. Some perfect. sort of feeling somehow, right. somewhere. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and, and then they also have the seven deadly sins. I mean, yeah, that's, I don't know. I just, it's just interesting. You, you kind of wonder. Yeah, yeah. Yes. The question is if one of their sacraments is marriage, do all of their nuns not get saved? They're married to Christ. Right. They literally have, yeah. have, they, a, have a ceremony, ceremony where they're married to Christ. Right. Yeah, it's it's kinda, a beautiful body right. for sin. It's kind of hard to watch. Right. If, uh, there, I, I see the appeal. I'm just saying. Right. Not because of like the works or anything like that, yeah. but just in general. The commitment. The yeah. commitment. The... Yeah. Um, yeah, like all of it, just the and the pure reverence. Like you don't walk into a Catholic church the way you walk into any other church, right? Even if you're not Catholic, right? You don't walk into that church, yeah. Just like I'm just here, right? Yeah. I mean, it's different. You walk in and it's just different. There is definitely a seriousness, um, and I've met you know there a a a a, not not really a coworker but. where my church office used to be one of the offices there, there was a lady there who I started talking to her, wanted to share the gospel with her and discovered that she was a Baptist. She was raised a Baptist, but she attends a Catholic church and she has for years. Hmm. And, um, and I said, you know, so then I'm thinking, have you denied your faith then? I mean, are you now holding to, you know, salvation by works? And she said, no, I still fully believe that I am, saved because of my faith in Christ. So why the Catholic Church? And she said, you know, I was attracted to the reverence of their worship. She said the churches that I grew up in, in Baptist churches, she said it was all just a bunch of hoopla and there was just was just not this seriousness to what they did. And she said, and I just found the Catholic Church to be very reverent in the way they approach God. I had um, a young lady that was part of our youth at our Pentecostal church. <laughs> Not really. They were like claiming they were Pentecostal, but um, she got confirmed to Catholicism so she could marry her husband. And in conversation with her, I still talk to her. We still have a lot of conversations. And in conversation with her, it's the same thing. Right. It's she couldn't. It was hard to take God serious mm-hmm. in where she was at before. Mm-hmm. And in all of her classes for confirmation and all of the um, programs and 
than the ceremonies and all the things. She said there's just a seriousness and a commitment that just really grabbed hold of her, and she's very thankful for it. Mm. And she feels like she's closer to God than she ever was mm. in, our, in our previous church. So mm. I just think of those things. Yeah. And it, it is... And she's in a Catholic church now. It's honestly one of the things for our little church that I find the most appealing mm. is that there is an extreme reverence for what we're doing there. And it's not like even if some of us do show up in jeans or shorts or whatever, it's still it's yeah. different. Yeah. Yeah. It should be. Yeah. Should be. I don't feel like I'm walking into a social club or just a get together or a concert. <laughs> concert. Right. Right. <laughs> and it like having that reverence yeah. for the presence of Christ that we are all bringing together makes the difference mm. in how I think it makes a big difference in how you come away from yeah. the service even. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yes, Bobby. I'll play devil's advocate. Is that okay? Sure. So, um, so you're witnessing to me saying, well, justification by faith and justification I'm mean, taking. But wait a minute. What is it? What does Brother James say? Faith without works is dead. Right. Because that's that question. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. So you evangelize. Ah. You have to keep reading. It will James. come up. Mm -hmm. You have to keep reading, James. Usually. Right. Right. You really don't have to. You just have to go take. Right. And he, and, he, and, he, and read 10. And he, he, makes, he makes the argument that Abraham was justified by faith, justified by works, and not by works. faith alone. No, that's, a, that's, that's really a great uh, point because uh, that is Roman Catholics. Um, let's, let's go to James. They actually will um, make the point that our beloved um, Martin Luther wanted James dismissed from the Bible. <laughs> yeah, he did. Right here in the epistle. Um, this person that you aspire to love <laughs> didn't even want you to have your whole Bible. He's still a flawed man. Let's see. Uh, so, our um, our Catholic friends like to often point out that you know the only place the Bible actually you know uses the phrase. Uh, you know, faith alone or faith by itself is in a negative sense, right? James chapter 2, verse 17, so also, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Um, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my work. So there's the key. I will show you my faith by my works. Yeah, right? Yeah. Everybody, skipped, everybody will quote 8 9 all the time. And like 10's, like 10's not there, which is very important in my mind, where it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we can walk in them. So it's obvious. The response to salvation and justification by faith is good work. Right. That's the answer. But, yes. You know, if you don't if you don't know to talk that way or talk, because it sounds like faith without works is dead, right there. They, they don't, you know, I mean, I've had people bring up James. That's that's what they'll bring up. How can you possibly say that, that works? You know, he says faith without works is dead. So, so you gotta you gotta be able to work around it because it's something that's brought up. You know, um, uh, um, let's see. <clears throat> anyway, it's, it's um, trying to find um, uh, Matthew 12, yeah. 
Matthew 12, uh, verse 33. Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, listen to this, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So what what is Jesus talking about there? Jesus is talking about the same thing that James is talking about. Because at its at its root, right, another another way of describing justification or another use of the word to justify is to vindicate. Right. When a person is acquitted in court, they are vindicated. They proclaim that they were innocent. If they are acquitted, if they are declared not guilty, or to use a biblical term, if they are justified, they are vindicated. Right. So to be justified is to be vindicated. What Jesus is talking about here and what James is talking about is that there is a vertical justification and then there is a horizontal justification there is a horizontal vindication the vertical justification before god is based on the righteousness of christ alone because no one can be declared righteous before god based on our works because nobody can keep the law but there is a horizontal vindication of our faith by our works in other words the world our faith will verify to the world that we are the people of god because of the fruit that we bear and in fact we when jesus says when he says that on the day of judgment by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned we actually see that played out in the the, the, the story of the sheep and the goats. When Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 25, he says on the day of judgment, when Christ returns, he will take a seat upon a throne. He will separate all the peoples of the earth. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat, the sheep he puts on his right, the goats he puts on his left. And then he says to uh, the sheep, um, I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty and you gave me drink. I was naked, you clothed me, sick and in prison and you visited me. And of course they say, when did we do these things? And he says, as much as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Well done. Enter into your rest. Right. And then to the goats, he says the opposite. But here's the point. What is the point of that? That, that whole scene, that whole scene, what is the point of that? Because Jesus knows what they've done. He knows who the believers are, right? He can see our faith and he knows who the unbelievers are. So why even have the day of judgment? What, what is the whole day of judgment about? It is about vindicating the believers and it's about vindicating God. Um, in other words, because as he is doing this, saying to the sheep, I was naked, you clothed me, hungry, you fed me. Because you got to imagine that on the day of judgment, a lot of the goats, a lot of the unbelievers are going to be looking across the aisle at believers and saying, why are they over there and I'm over here? They're not any different than I am. I live next door to that guy. I mean, you know, he's not any different than me. I'm a good person. Why Why is he over there? Why, why am I going to go, there's the door to hell that I'm looking at and... God is pointing them toward heaven. That's the horizontal vindication. Christ is going to say, essentially the day of judgment is, here's why. I was hungry and they fed me. I was thirsty, they gave me something to drink. I was naked and they clothed me. And you're over there because I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. Right? 
the, 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 the life that they lived bears testimony to why these are the sheep and why these are the goats. The works don't get them into heaven at all, but it vindicates their faith. It vindicates their salvation. And it also vindicates God. In other words, Romans chapter uh, 3. This is what I mean by vindicates God. So Romans. It would be like people are trying to work to gain salvation. You cannot do anything to get salvation or be justified. That's faith alone. But once you are saved and you have that faith, then your works are outward as kind of like a proof, proof. that you are in Christ. You no longer live for yourself, but you're doing these works as a service right. to to God and to his brother to your brethren and you're serving one another to right. um for a watching world to right. see. Yeah. Yeah. God really is the just judge of all the earth. And like any judge, where's the evidence? So, yes. Right? So the the good works that you're talking about is just living your life. Right completely not yeah i'm gonna go have people over for dinner at my house right it's getting up and taking your breath in the morning yeah and knowing who you are and what the price was paid yeah and trying you know you're not going to live up to that standard no no but you're still because you are saved right have faith with gift and to go That's right. with that, to use that verse in James would be to take it out of context because isn't that basically what James is speaking to? If you look at who James yes. learned from and who he's actually speaking to, then you take that verse out of context by using it to describe works instead of fruits of the Spirit. Right. James is saying that Abraham's faith was justified or Abraham was justified. He was vindicated by his works. By the fact that he believed God and he followed God and he strove to live in obedience to God. And that was evident in what he did. Yes. Not that that is what saved him. That's correct. That's correct. And so look at uh, Romans 3, 21. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Important language. God's righteousness is demonstrated apart from law-keeping, apart from the law. And the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, are declared not guilty, are acquitted, are vindicated by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now listen to this. Why did God do this? Why does God put forward his son as a propitiation by blood to be received by faith? This was to show God's righteousness. See, God in and of himself is righteous. God always does what is right. He never does what is wrong. And God sends forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins to show that God is righteous, to demonstrate his righteousness. You see, because if a crime has been committed, somebody has got to pay for that crime, right? God the Father could not willy-nilly just forgive us. He couldn't just say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to not, I'm going to act like you haven't sinned, and I'm going to let everybody into heaven. Well, if he's the just judge of all the earth who always does what is right, then he can't do that. He can't overlook sin. There has to be a penalty for it. And so, he says this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sin, so he temporarily turns a blind eye to the sins of the Old Testament. Why? It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Here's, here's what I'm getting at. So that he might be just, so that God might remain just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So God is not viewed as having a double standard or being a hypocrite. He remains just in, in two ways. He requires perfect obedience to the law, and that's met by Christ. He requires that all sin be punished and paid for, and that is met by Christ. So God 
is God remains the just judge. He remains just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Christ. The one he declares not guilty, those who have faith in Christ, while at the same time maintaining his own justice and integrity. It's amazing what God goes through in order to save a people unto himself.